Hello from the Scottish Independence Podcast team. A few weeks ago, we recorded a meeting organised by Yes Dunbar, who had invited Mike Small to come and speak to them. He's speaking about sovereignty and food sovereignty and the politics of food. Um, hello, uh, my name's Kath Jones. I'm one of the two conveners at Yes Dunbar. Um, a warm welcome to everyone joining us tonight for the first Yes Dunbar speaker event of 2022. Our speaker tonight is Mike Small, who many of you will, will, will be familiar with from the Bella Caledonia blog, which he has edited since 2007. Mike is a freelance writer, journalist, author and publisher who has written for The Guardian, Sunday, Sunday Herald, Sunday National and other publications. Uh, Mike was the founder of the Fife Food Project, which at the time was the largest food project in Europe. And from the findings of this project, Mike has written a book called Scotland's Local Food Revolution. He's also a member of the Enough Collective. Thank you and welcome, Mike. Hi, thanks very much for inviting me. Yeah, I'm really delighted to talk about sovereignty and food sovereignty and the politics of food and begin to um, explore some of this with you and look forward to discussion about it. The interest in this subject has brought a kind of convergence of two streams of interest in my life, namely, sovereignty and the search for Scottish independence and food sovereignty, the idea that you can control your own food system. I think the idea of food sovereignty has regained interest um, in recent months as the Brexit debacle has unfolded and with the collapse of food chains and with the rise in food prices and the realisation that our food system is a is incredibly precarious um, and um, this has meant that for the Scottish independence movement for many people in the democracy movement if you like people are beginning to look about and say well what resources do we have what energy resources do we have what is our education system like what do we have as the material basis for independence and do we have it's often Kind of phrased as um, could we feed ourselves that's what people within the independence movement think that the question of food sovereignty is and that question is um, a bit more complex than we might currently understand it so I'd hope to unpack some of that and um, maybe we can explore it in conversation so but first before we do that maybe let's define what food sovereignty is usually meant to mean um, because food sovereignty is a concept that really arose out of the developing world um, and the Campesina movement, which was peasant food workers who were sort of saying, well, we need to control our own food system. So it normally is defined by six defining features. And so I'll just go through them quickly before we go back to Scotland, if you like. The first is that food sovereignty focuses on food for people. The right to food which is healthy and culturally appropriate is the basic legal demand undermining, underpinning food sovereignty. The right to healthy and culturally appropriate food is the key demand. The second is that it values food providers. Many smallholder farmers suffer violence, marginalization and racism from corporate landowners. So it has food producers at its heart. Thirdly, it localises food systems. 
food sovereignty movement localizes food systems. It says that food must be seen primarily as sustenance for the community and only secondarily as something to be traded. Fourthly, it puts control locally. Local food providers must have control over territory, land, grazing, water, seeds, livestock, and fish populations. Fifthly, it builds knowledge and skills. And sixth, food sovereignty works with nature. You can't really have a food sovereignty movement that is uh, unsustainable or against nature. So these are a set of slightly different criteria as the rest of the world understands it than if people within the independence movement say, are we food sovereign? So there's a couple of kind of competing things going on here. So before we unpack this a bit more, what's my qualification to talk about any of this and how do we approach the question of could Scotland feed itself? Between 2000 and 2014, I ran a, a local food project in Fife that was a bioregional response to climate crisis and it grew and grew and the list described it in 2012 as um, the Fife Diet was established in 27 by Mike and Karen Small of Burnt Island as a prompt to recognise and appreciate the food that's all around us. Now it's the largest local food project in Europe. The project has 3,000 members and is driving various schemes around Fife, including community growing areas, kids clubs, plot to pot workshops, seasonal guides, online recipes and celebrations of eating together with regular events. Now backed by five years of hands-on experience of the issues involved in making local food available and sustainable, the Fife Diet has also become an important and respected voice in the development of Scottish Government's national food policy. I'm not sure about that last bit because ultimately what we realised is that there was a bit of a contradiction between food sovereignty and sovereignty and that the Scottish Government's national food policy was really a set of contradictions. It was driven by the need for export growth, that's the underlying strategy of all of it, and then some funding local food projects and local food economies. But these things for me were in complete contradiction. They were not, not just intention, but they were completely contradictory policies. You couldn't do both and be coherent. And that's effectively why I stopped working in food because it wasn't really credible to be uh, arguing for local food economies and sustainable food, whilst the national food strategy was let's sell salmon to China and whiskey to India. This doesn't really make any sense at all. It's completely unsustainable. And it's completely out of sync with our um, realization about the state of the climate crisis. So, this is all a big. Uh, introduction to the question of, is Scotland food sovereign? Could Scotland be food sovereign? Can we feed ourselves? Do we have the natural resources to feed ourselves? And that's this question is, yes, absolutely, we do. We have an abundance of food in Scotland and the ability to produce, manufacture and distribute food. Absolutely, we do. Um, but there are a number of problems about that. Um, we have good farming, we have seafood, we have wheat and grains, we have soft fruit. But there are several problems for that answer to be a simple one. Um, we don't grow much of what we eat and we don't eat much of what we grow. Much of our best food is destined for export and much of our land is completely oriented 
around the needs and cultures of the people who own our lands and rivers, and that's not us. If we take example of just three of Scotland's most iconic images, if we take the grouse, the salmon and the stag, they are often put forward as um, great iconic Scottish food produce, venison or salmon. Um, but in fact, they just act as kind of representations of our completely degraded and unequal land ownership patterns. So there's been estimates, um, this is a challenge, but I don't think it's far off, that a fifth of the land in Scotland is used for grouse, grouse shooting. Um, stag and deer are, uh, a, you know, a, a terrible representation of land ownership in Scotland. And, um, and really, this is, this is the, the idea of Scotland and rural Scotland and the Highlands as a kind of playground for the rich for rich people that aren't from here to come and hunt and shoot. And that dominates our land. So if we're discussing how we manage our land and how we can manage our farming and food, that reality has to be confronted. And that reality doesn't just disappear with independence. That reality is about landed class and power. So the pattern of land ownership severely curtails our ability to manage our land and our food systems and also our ecology and our psyche. Equally, Scotland suffers some of the worst cases of diet-related illness in the world and leads Europe in diabetes and childhood obesity and heart illness. So something about our diet as it currently stands is fundamentally wrong. So... Could Scotland feed itself? Yeah, but hopefully not the way it is now. So the problems with Scotland's food system are fundamental and dire. We currently have outsourced our food retail to about four giant supermarkets. And when we look at the fragility of that through the prism of Brexit, we understand that that system is extremely fragile. And it's not controlled by us. It's controlled by four companies. We don't have ownership of our land. We have massive dietary health issues. We have an export strategy that is oriented around two huge industries, salmon and whiskey, the first of which is hugely problematic. Almost every single sea loch in Scotland is heavily polluted by the salmon industry, which is creating a product that is riddled with lice and has decimated the wild population. Yet that's our iconic sales concept. Unsurprisingly, because of all of this, uh, we have a pretty low sense of our own food culture and our own food history and our own food futures. When I uh, did the Fife Diet, I remember telling people about it at the start and doing a talk in Dundee to school children and telling people right at the beginning, we're going to eat food only from Fife for a year and see what happens. What do you think is going to happen? And the hand at the back, the kids stood up and said, I think you're all going to die. And the reason he said that was because children and most of us are completely disconnected from land, think that we live in a country that produces nothing, can't really conceive of Scotland being in a place of abundance. And so we talk in the independence movement about cringe, 
but we have a massive cultural cringe. We have massive cultural self-hatred about our own food, our own land. And we really need to repair some of that before we can think about or talk about feeding ourselves. We do have at the high end quite a lot of um, chat about our restaurants and about celebrity chefs and stuff like that. But that's kind of fairly peripheral. Most people don't eat out in fancy restaurants. The reality is that our school children are fed very poor school lunches, very poor for a pittance. So whilst we can celebrate some of these great chefs and they become great media people, the reality of some of our public health and public resources is, is pretty poor. So uh, what are the solutions to this? I think the first is not to assume that independence on its own would be some sort of panacea. It's an essential first step, but completely inadequate. We need to understand the deeper problems with our food system. We, understand, we need to understand the need for deeper cultural repair. We need to do something about it. We need to be stop pandering to business as usual and recognise that the multiple crises that we're in are not just constitutional, they're economic, they're social, they're health, they're Brexit, there are a number of crises converging here and there is stuff we can do about it. So I think that the food movement uh, could become a key part of the independence movement, but it has to go way beyond demanding saltires on Scottish goods or complaining when there's a Union Jack. It's kind of, it's a bit thin, it's a bit one-dimensional. It's not really credible. It needs to envisage what an exciting, radical and visionary Scotland would taste like and how it might begin to address the social and health crisis we face. So there are some good things that have happened. There's some radical thinking on this. There's some great examples from around the world, from near to home. There is the food sovereignty movement. Um, I produced a food manifesto of 20 ways to change the way we eat, which I can share on the chat. As was said earlier, I wrote a book called Scotland's Local Food Revolution that outlines some of these problems and some of these solutions and the experience that we had. <clears throat> there is great work by projects like um, Nourish Scotland, which is a kind of think tank um, connecting people in the food movement in Scotland. There's the Orchard Collective that has begun to repair and connect Scotland's orchards. Um, there's the Scotland the Bread movement, which is exploring how you uh, develop grains um, for flour and improve bread at a community level. There's lots of, lots of great examples throughout Scotland of people doing innovative, radical things in, in food that point the way to a better future. But we need to listen to them, we need to learn from them, and we need to give them much higher profile and instead stop celebrating the endless rollout of new supermarkets which provide cheap food, but poor quality food, poor jobs, low-paid, low-skilled low jobs, and just concentrate hands in, in a handful of people that already control our food system. So we can be food sovereign, absolutely. We can feed ourselves, but this needs a, a far more transformative look at what we mean by creating a new Scotland and creating a new food system. So uh, thank you for listening. Those are just some initial thoughts I have, and I'm happy to share 
some resources I've got with people to look into this and really look forward to people's questions and conversation. Thanks, Mike. That was really brilliant. Uh, plenty to get our teeth into there. Um, shall we move to the Q&A session? I'd like to ask some questions. Food prices. Obviously, that's an issue, but uh, I get from listening to you before that uh, you don't think that prices for food should be cheap, but that wages should be uplifted, and this involves a whole other thing. So we need commitment to a lot of different types of policy to get this to all come together so that we can have our food um, sovereignty and make it work for everybody. So um, how do we do it? <laughs> who who yeah. is is working on this and uh, how do we apply pressure to, to get this to happen? Yeah, well, I mean, it's certainly it's true that there's lots of cheap food about and yeah. in times of austerity and hard times it's uh, difficult to argue for food prices to rise <laughs> so mm. that's not what I'm arguing for I'm arguing for mm. food to be affordable rather than yeah. cheap yeah. because if food is just too cheap then that undermines the producers and classically with milk dairies yeah. are producing uh, milk at a price to supermarkets that they're getting so exploited it's hardly worth their while but they're mm. kind of caught in that so it's not about making food cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and lower quality. It's about mm -hmm. raising the quality of the food, but making people in a situation where they're able to afford it. Yeah. So it is quite big systematic um, change that's being demanded here. But also the, the problems that we're facing are systematic and, mm -hmm. and deep. So um, we need to start changing things fundamentally. Yes, I agree. Uh, David, you've got your hand up. Would you like to ask a question? Yeah, uh, uh, comments and, and uh, questions, because um, I, I'm, I think, more concerned about reducing carbon emissions and having sustainable um, land, land use. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it's ridiculous that we, we, we can produce potatoes in East Lothian and then they then get shipped down to Manchester to be uh, washed and sorted and then transported back back to the supermarket up here for us uh, to, to buy. Um, and I find I, I'm not too bothered about sovereignty because I think I'm still going to, going to want to drink tea and coffee and, and, and I'm perfectly happy to trade things. But on the other hand, um, uh, I am worried about um, how far the cost of food adequately reflects the... Um, environmental impact of, uh, of uh, transport and how far it's possible for local authorities say to pursue procurement policies which um, are geared towards lo lo local uh, um, yeah. when the market sort of goes very much the other way and, and the pressure is to buy the cheapest. I think we're, we're, we're lucky in Dunbar in, in having th things like, like the uh, community carrot which at least provides one sort of pathway for lo lo local producers to sell their goods locally. Um, but the inequality of power between the sort of four, four, four main purchasers um, and uh, farmers who, who are left basically as price takers rather than being able to negotiate about it. Um, and also the power relationship of um, tenant farmers to, to landowners. 
Um, and all this um, seems seems to demand a, a, a much more comprehensive approach to land use and agricultural policy and food policy uh, than anything the government has got anywhere near coming up with. Um, anyway, sorry, <laughs> a combination of um, uh, a comment, but I mean also questions about um, how 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 do we cope? about um, local, local um, sourcing of foodstuffs. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of comments and questions in there. I mean, certainly in terms of procurement uh, for schools, that tends to happen mm. at huge levels. So you get Brake Brothers or somebody, some big corporation coming in with a huge bid that's cheap and so is accepted. And then they say, when you say, and how much is that per child? How much is that child's lunch actually costing? They say, oh, well, that's commercial, confidential. That's right. We can't actually work, work that out for you. We, well, they know exactly what it is, but they don't want to tell us because it's a pittance. It's embarrassing the amount of money it is. So you need to break some of those systems. You need to just say that's not acceptable. And that will take a boldness that I've not seen in Scottish or UK government. To be quite frank, you need to have a popular movement that demands some of these changes and puts pressure on our own governments. Otherwise, it was not going to happen because they're not bold enough and they're kind of beholden to corporate interests. It's just not going to happen. And the, the farming lobby itself is really quite conservative. Yeah. So um, I agree with you that those procurement issues are, are massive. And I also agree with you that the local economy needs to be nurtured in a way that we've not really seen yet. So I would advocate regional and bioregional local economic systems being developed um, that then um, are nurtured and have some, some momentum. And we did it in Fife and it's mm. happening in Ayrshire in schools, sourcing locally. So there are models of that happening, but it is going to cost more money. Yeah. It just is. It's more expensive to feed people well and to set up those systems to skill people up. It's not endlessly more expensive, but it's more expensive than feeding your children really poor quality food. Yeah. That's right. um, can I ask a question from the chat? Um, can you say more about what difference independent will make on the food issues? That's from Gareth. Yeah, well, um, I mean, arguably none, arguably quite a lot. It depends what kind of independence we create. You know, I think if you're in control of your all aspects of your economy, if you're in control of your exports and your marketing and your soft power, then you have the potential to really change your food system. There's, it's perfectly possible that we gain independence, change the flag, and don't change it much else about landed power in Scotland or corporate power in Scotland or how we think about food in the future. In that case, very little would change. The same people would run our food system as do now. We just have some more salt towers. But the potential to, to, to really take control of your economy and your farming and your idea of what a local economy versus export growth meant is only really viable within an independence framework. Can I just come back on, on that? I mean, thanks very much for that answer, Mike. Um, mm. Part of the reason my question is that I do think some of the anxiety around independence, you know, people who are wavering a bit and so on, 
is on a lot of these sort of supply issues. You know, will, will I will I still be able to get what I need? Will I still be able to buy the foods I want and so on? Um, and um, and I think we can be fairly sure that the if the big supermarkets are not going to go away with independence. And you know, people like Tesco are already well used to working across um, different jurisdictions, and it's not going to be a huge additional issue. They're already working in in Ireland, of course, uh, which, which is an EU country anyway. Um, so I think we can kind of reassure people that these kind of anxieties are not going to, to cause too much hiccups. But nevertheless, we do have to be realistic that um, there are going to be some border checks with England and there are going to be some producers who are going to say, oh, this is too much hassle, I'm not going to supply across the border. And that might that might happen in both directions. Do you have any comments on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of, I don't really want the same people to be running our food system. So I don't really want to have the reassurance of Tesco and Asda that they'll still be in charge. So I'm talking about a system where, a situation where Scottish independence is part of transformational change that is in sync with our climate reality. That doesn't mean the same system just continuing. And I'm quite wary of a notion of Scottish independence that says to people, everything will be the same. Everything will be exactly as it is. Don't worry. Any worries you have will, I must make them go away. Everything will be the same. That's not a, a, a concept of independence that I'm interested in. I think that's disastrous. I think the idea of independence I'm interested in is transformational and key to that is completely transforming our food system. So I'm not really interested in, oh, will there be a border problem with us to getting the stuff over? That's, that's irrelevant to the future. The current food system is broken and we can tell that it's broken not just by the 17 kilometres of lorries out of Calais, we can tell it by our children's ill health and our diabetes and our leading uh, diet-related health indicators in the world. So when people say, oh, let's not change anything, we have to change everything. But I, I get that, and I guess most people on this call will get that. But in terms of voters who are anxious, how can we present this in positive terms? Uh, well, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't really care. I, I mean, if somebody is like... Uh, I, I'm, I will vote yes if you tell me that nothing will change. That's not really a dialogue I'm going to have. I'm going to have a dialogue which says to this person, whatever age they are, this is the reality of the society we're in. This is the reality of the ecological crisis. If you think nothing has to change, that's okay. But I'm not really going to spend a lot of energy having a debate with you because you're living in a different world than the real one that the rest of us are in. So it's not really about assuaging the doubts of, you know, some um, some no voters who are just living in a different world. That's, that's kind of pointless exercise, I think. Okay, thanks. Um, Dermot, would you like to put your question? So um, thanks very much, Mike, for that. That's, um, that was really interesting. Um, I mean, I, I come to this uh, debate with no knowledge whatsoever about food other than, you know, there's a general um, trend towards healthier eating pretty much everywhere, um, even in my own family, for example. Um, so the, 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 the direction of travel, I think, is towards healthier eating, more local food. And, and I totally appreciate that this is a big and complex subject, which involves land ownership and how people eat and supply chains and control of land and all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> but the point I want, I'm, I'm actually, um, for various family reasons, I'm sitting in Dublin um, just now, and, uh, and I've been here for a number of months. And so I shop in Tesco's, unfortunately, because it's 
<laughs> here in Phippsburg because it's low, nearby. And, you know, all the, big all the big suppliers are here in Dublin. They're the Tesco's and the Liddles and all the rest of it. But what I'm, what I'm really struck by um, is the amount of Irish produce that Tesco sell, for example. Um, I can go to Tesco's just up the road and buy Irish apples, for example. The bags are Irish, they come in a bag, and they come, I think, generally from um, County Tipperary. And um, the, the, the amount of Irish produce is extraordinary, actually, in Tesco. So I, I get that there's an issue with the Tesco's and their control of the supply chain, but even here in a country that's been independent for actually 100 years, it's continuing, I think, this year, um, you know, the existing mechanisms seem to be delivering local produce um, better than they do in Scotland because when I'm in Scotland, I despair. You, you can't go to, into Tesco's in Scotland and get Scottish apples. You just can't, mm -hmm. or, or, or very, very rarely. I mean, you can go to, um, you can go to local shops in Dunbar and Musselburgh and all the rest of it. In, if they're in season, you can find local apples, but you have to hunt, hunt for them. So the... Um, so I guess I'm not really, I don't really have a question. I'm just offering that as an, as an observation that yeah. in a country that's been independent for 100 years already, the existing supply chains seem to have delivered a lot more local produce um, into the, the supermarket shelves. So there's a few things going on there. Um, I mean, so my definition of local produce isn't national. Right, if I live in the borders and I buy something from Shetland, that's technically in Scotland, but that's not local produce, mm -hmm. right? So I'm talking about bioregional, regional food systems. And I know that's difficult for people to get their heads around, but that is what I'm talking about. So, um, and the second thing I'd say is that um, it's, it's undoubtedly true what you're describing, that there'll be more Irish produce in Irish supermarkets than in Scottish supermarkets. But equally, Supermarkets cannot, by definition, give you local produce. They just cannot, because they're operating at such a scale that they're going to buy from big buyers at mass scale, and that's not going to be local, small, independent producers. It's just not. So supermarkets, in my mind, and this is my I'm happy to be challenged, but I don't see a future in which we have a viable low carbon or zero carbon food system that is run by supermarkets. It's just inconceivable because of the way they operate their supply chains and the way they buy at scale and the way they manipulate producers. I, if somebody can explain to me how that's going to be zero carbon, I'm all ears. I, that's inconceivable. I mean, I suppose, I suppose you're right, but I don't, I don't see us stepping away from the supermarket system anytime soon. Um, you know, uh, I, I don't, in fact, I don't even know what would happen in order for us to do that because people are wedded to their supermarkets for a whole bunch of reasons. They um, are. You know, um, but at least, at least here, you know, if you go to Tesco's, you're going to get apples that have been grown maybe a couple of counties away, for example. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's slightly better. And I'd say it's materially better than, than it is in Scotland. I mean, I still despair of going into greengrocers in Scotland and having to buy leeks that have been grown in Leicestershire or wherever, you know, when there's... Yeah. there's <laughs> it's, uh, but I mean, I know that that's, that's a supply chain issue and, uh, and, um, uh, and I, I don't know what, what needs to happen in order to change that. It would be a lot more satisfying. I mean, I, I know the model you're trying to move to and it's... Um, 
probably aspirational or, or, or medium or longer term than, than short term. But at least, in, at least in the short or medium term in, a, in an independent Scotland, it would be nice to go into supermarkets and have an array in Scotland and have an array of Scottish produce facing you. Sure. And I think, yeah, you're right. I mean, um, the, the change I want isn't going to come easily. And it's certainly true that most, most of us simply can't conceive of the change that's necessary. It's just unthinkable because we're so wedded to the systems that are completely dysfunctional. But one note of optimism, when I was doing the Fife diet, I was told by a food producer who produced apple juice that branded it as Fife apple juice. And I had to take, take them to court because none of the apples was from Fife. Mm. And they said, well, you, you can't grow apples in Scotland. So that's changed. And equally, we were growing uh, trials of wheat and quinoa and trying to grow uh, wheat to make bread from Scottish-sourced flour. And we were told by lots of people, you cannot grow wheat for bread in Scotland. And then in the short period since we did that project, like seven or eight years, Scotland, uh, the, the bread, flour of Scotland has been just given a, a massive award for its innovative project and, and actually it's a great brand and a great product. So in, in seven years or less, a couple of key things about that's completely impossible, you can't do that in Scotland, have become completely impossible and award-winning. Mm. So change does happen sometimes. I think I think part of the problem is that you know we're part of the same island as uh, as England and in certainly in England because of the larger land area and larger population and slightly better climate and all the rest of it, it is possible to grow things like apples in number <clears throat> at a cheaper rate than it would be in Scotland. And so therefore sure. supermarkets supermarkets obviously go for the cheapest uh, the cheapest unit rate when they're but sourcing stuff. So therefore, you know, if they have a choice between a, a an orchard in Worcestershire and an orchard in um, Lanarkshire, the likelihood is they'll take the one in, in Worcestershire. Unfortunately, that's just the it's just a the it's just the geography of the the circumstances, isn't it? To a certain yeah. extent. Anyway, that was that was my point. It was just it was just to offer that observation, really. Sure, okay, thanks. Thanks, thanks Dermot. Uh, another question from the chat, uh, Mark James: How to make how to make issue more inclusive rather than preserve of comfortable middle classes? Yeah, no, that's a big that's a big issue. That's definitely a big issue and a big question because I realised if you if you rail against supermarkets, you're perceived as railing against cheap food. And that's not a very popular thing to do. So we, we should have the right to decent, affordable housing, and we should have the right to decent, affordable food. These are fundamental rights that we need to assert and demand. And put it in that, those terms, it's different from, I actually, demand the right to be able to walk into a supermarket and buy, you know, two litres of Coke for a pound or, you know, have an access, access to a wide range of really low quality cheap food. These are, these, are, these are things that are seen as a great democratic right and a great populist thing, but are actually really damaging for people and not very good for people and not really a social good. Um, so I'm acutely aware of the concept that local food or viable food is seen as a middle-class concern. And I'm acutely aware that people who are 
uh, on the breadline or in poverty, why would I care about the environment or the carbon of this food? I totally understand that. I totally understand that. But we need to be able to change the nature of this debate so that we're aligning our social needs, people's hunger and poverty and food poverty with uh, you know, a wider longer term goals of being having a viable food system uh, and a viable ecology. And I, and I think it's possible to do things in a way that has social justice at its heart. Thanks. Um, Alistair, would you like to put your question to Mike? Uh, thanks for that. That was um, really informative. I, I've got one question and, and I guess a couple of general observations. Uh, I, I came into the discussion maybe five minutes late, so I thought you may have spoken of this. I may have missed it, but I was, I was interested in whether you'd engaged or had any knowledge or feedback about how the ideas around food sovereignty and a more just environment where producers are, are paid well and people are fed well, um, whether how that's perceived in education in Scotland. Because um, mm -hmm. I'm you know, aware that the, and knowing, you know, I've got two kids, the knowledge of, of, of food and, the, and there's the disconnection in children and also as they go, in, go into adulthood between where the food, come from, where the food comes from and, and what they eat. And I wasn't sure in, in the research that you've done in the book that you've written, whether you'd had any um, specific uh, experiences of dealing with people in education who could shape food curriculum, you know, home economics. Yeah. And so yeah, I have some experience. Um, I mean, we did a pilot project with Fife Council where we created a network of um, uh, six schools and three primary schools um, where we were we rewrote re re the menu and mapped where all the food came from within Fife. And then um, we got, for example, the kids to create the, the logo for the carton of milk that they were going to get and then mm. take kids to the farm where that milk was produced mm. and uh, retrain the staff, uh, the catering staff, in to skill them up in how to prepare from fresh ingredients. Yeah. So it's quite complicated because a lot of that's been destroyed. A lot of that food is just brought in. And so a lot of the staff are de-skilled. Pupils don't know where any of the foods comes from. Who cares? Nobody yeah. cares. <laughs> But it is quite easy to recreate that and put that into the curriculum. You know, okay, this is geography, this is mass, this is home economics, this is everything. Uh, this is your culture. So we can do that. And it's happening in Southeast, East, Southeast Ayrshire as well. Um, so there's some fragments of stuff where that's happened and worked and we can do that. So that is possible, but we're quite far away from that. Mm -hmm. and yeah. it's going to take quite a lot of work to repair that i'm yeah. not sure if that so, answered your question Sorry. yeah it's almost like the ignorance around food and food production in scotland is almost seen as a cultural virtue or you know part of a cultural identity unfortunately um yeah the other, the other observation i had my, my wife is a, uh, is a nutritionist by by training and well was and she used to get so frustrated by the low level of um, advice that used to come from official sources, whether it was uh, government or not-for-profits that had very close ties with the food industries. And that, that was 
that was always um, uh, very, you know, a bit of a concern. And the other observation I had was we lived for many years in, in Australia where there's obviously it needs to be food uh, reliant on its own production for obvious reasons, given its, its proximity, but where there's actually uh, a real duopoly of supermarkets there. So you can only really buy your food from, from two sources, two major corporate sources. And it's on, they, they almost have or behave at a, at a criminal level in terms of how they treat their producers um, to maintain, yeah. um, uh, you know, that milk is, is cheap, is able to be bought cheap, cheaper than it is for the cost of production. Um, and yeah. yeah, it's really quite, quite sad. So that, whatever happens, we've got to avoid that scenario. Well, that's true here for dairies. That's true right here and now for dairies. It's it's appalling, and it's ex complete exploitation. And the dairies have very little choice, but it's it's an appalling situation. Yeah, and they, I, I presumably, they get threatened by the supermarkets as well. And yeah, yeah, and it's very close to not being viable for them at all. Mm. Um, but very few outlets, and, and this is part of the centralisation as well. So. Part of the reason why you would decentralize it is that you break up some of those power networks um, and you don't have a dependency on one buyer that comes along and says, I'll buy all of your milk. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, another question from the chat uh, from Sue McFadden. Uh, thank you, Mike, very informative. I would really like to read your information as well. Uh, what are you implying is really a need to challenge the grip of market capitalism? How do you see this beginning? How can the small scale projects start to become more mainstream? Big question. Ooh, good question, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is about market capitalism. We, we all know this, it's all about market capitalism. Um, I suppose I think that we need to have lots of grassroots initiatives like the Fife Diet and like lots that were are about, and then we need to connect them up so that they have sharing of knowledge. And then we need to either force national government to adopt this, because a lot of this rhetoric is in national government, like we're creating circular economies and local economies. Okay, are you? Are you really? Where? Show us. Because there are the, 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 the grassroots of those happening but they're not really supported um so yeah i think that we need to um boost those local initiatives and connect them up and make almost like um you know like how uh, you have rhizomes of underground networks connecting that's how i kind of see that uh network creating underground patterns across scotland that then pop up and um and share knowledge with each other. But it, it is a challenge and I'm kind of caught between despair and hope, like a lot of people these days, because I see all of these amazing initiatives, but I also see kind of like failure to help support them um, at a Scottish national level. Thanks. Uh, another question from Isabel Knox. Uh, are there any models from other countries, e.g. Scandic countries, where food sustainability is working so that we can follow it. Yes, loads, loads from lots of places, loads from Cuba and loads from Denmark, where they have a thing called the House of Food in Copenhagen that retrained all public health workers 
in hospitals and schools and prisons. And I think they have something like, I think it's something like ridiculous, like a 92% organic content of produce in public institutions in Copenhagen because of this house of food that was a holistic systemic uh, plan to change their food system. And they're ambitious, they're bold, they're radical, they're grounded. It's about jobs, it's about creating good jobs, it's about standards, and it's wildly popular. And I think that is a model that we should just grab and replicate and learn from, because we could do it here. There's no big difference between us and Denmark in terms of cities and people. And So, yeah, there's some exciting uh, examples. In Cuba, there's a thing called Organicopos, which was um, to create large-scale urban farming um, that was like allotments, but on a municipal scale. And that was because they had the US ban. And so they had to learn how to feed themselves. And that's how they did it. And it, again, it created jobs. It created people having access to fresh fruit and vegetables that were locally sourced and organic, organically grown. It's an amazing example. It's radical, but it's not scary. And we could do it here. Uh, another question from the chat. Thanks, Mike. What would your vision look like in Dunbar if you could be totally utopian? <laughs> Martin Lacey. <laughs> well, let's be totally utopian. Um, I suppose um, really stripping back to basics and sort of rethinking what is our food system for? What's our food for? What do we need it to be for? And let, let's make that for us. So it would be food that sustains us, that nurtures us, that nurtures the ground, nurtures soil is good for uh, biodiversity is created with love and um and make sure everybody's well fed and happy and nourished and the funny thing is that all of that is possible it's not really that utopian <laughs> it really isn't because we have skills we have some technology we have some simple technologies um and we have some knowledge that we're basing on you know it's not like new technologies um are in conflict with old knowledge. They're not, they're, they're compatible. And I think in the 21st century, we could bring them together and create a food system that was, that was really working for people. A question from Arthur. In Scotland, does climate restrict what we can do food-wise? Yeah, it does. Yeah, it totally does. Um, so my commitment and my understanding is that you eat locally and you eat what's viable locally. So... That is problematic depending on where you are because you might have poorer quality uh, land. And it's simply true that some parts of Scotland, uh, the West and the Northwest, have lower, you know, higher, higher rain and lower quality soil. They just do. So when you map that, you figure out where the parts of the land are that has better soil for growing wheat and growing uh, different crops. So if you're taking my line of argument seriously, which you may not, um, then you eat what you can grow viably where you are. And that does have a, a difference further north you are and what soil you have. But it also becomes interesting because places that have different qualities of, of land and soil can have grazing cattle, uh, might have access to seafood 
So a lot of the West Coast has, has amazing seafood, but less good arable land. So when you begin to map, and nobody's really done this properly yet, when you begin to map regionally and bioregionally what Scotland could, could grow for itself, um, you see amazing diversity and you see challenges in different places. We were really blessed in Fife because we had a mix, but other places are even better. And, and interestingly, cities are amazingly fertile as well. So definitely location and climate affects what you could grow, but it's, uh, it's also an opportunity for innovation. So are all high-tech options horribly carbon greedy or are there things we could um, use that would, would offset our bad climate in that respect? Yeah, well, it depends what you mean by high-tech. Um, well, it's not a basic is, farming is what I mean, not necessarily yeah. soil. Yeah, I mean, a, a polytunnel's quite high-tech in some senses. I think also once you change the mindset and you have to operate at a gigantic scale, that really changes the technology you would use. Mm -hmm. So um, harvesting water for irrigation systems or using uh, renewable technologies to improve your irrigation system, is that high tech? It's a wee bit high tech, but it's not, it's not gigantic in scale. So I, I suppose the difference is um, rather than say, how can we produce the food that we currently eat but locally, which would mean a question like, how can I create strawberries in December or asparagus or whatever? You know, that creates a technological need that isn't there if you say, well, I'm gonna eat locally and seasonally. Mm -hmm. So I'm gonna eat asparagus when it's June. And I'm not really gonna eat, um, you know, kiwi fruits, because I can't possibly create them sustainably in Scotland. But the different question is, could I live without eating kiwi fruits? Well, probably, probably could. So it's basically working out why we need food sovereignty, why we need energy sovereignty, why we need all of these various different types of sovereignty and pulling them together. And for all of that to work out, we need to plan for it. We can't just say we're going to do this and then blunder into it. It has to be planned for and it has to be something that's worked through properly because it has massive implications for everything. That's where I see it. Yeah. Any more questions? I think we're almost there. No hands. Uh, Dermot, did you want to come back? Yeah, just, just one other observation from here, this side of the Irish Sea. I went into a shop yesterday and, and they were selling big bags of uh, seaweed, dried seaweed. Mm. Um, never seen that before, actually. I know that seaweed is a thing and you can harvest it and use it in various uh, foodstuffs, et cetera, et cetera. But I've never seen it sold commercially in a shop before. And I saw that yesterday here in North Dublin. Um, so, you know, with um, Scotland's um, enormous coastline, I would have thought that's a resource that, that we should be looking at, really. I don't know, Mike, if you look at that from a technical point of view in, in your um, work in the, foods, in the food sector. There's no obstacle, really. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. Seaweed is one of these um, things that's become really fashionable and could be a great product on all sorts of levels. Um, and there are some people doing some good stuff about this. It's a bit like um, oat milk. Why don't we have Scottish oat milk? As we change, you know, I mean, there's incredible things about people moving to veganism and, and, and reducing their meat. 
that a few years ago would just be like unthinkable. So change kind of happens quite rapidly. And the excitement about stuff around seaweed uh, or non-dairy produce creates huge opportunities for new local industries and produce to spring up and be really viable. So I think that's exciting. Do you see any uh, issues at all with joining uh, any trade unions such as the EU or EFTA? Do you think uh, it will make it more difficult to protect food sovereignty or easier? Or <laughs> I think that's a mixed bag. It's quite complex. I don't really see Europe as a sort of static, stagnant entity. I sort of see it as a thing that has got some real flaws and problems, but has also got incredibly rich opportunities and networks. So I would be, for example, um, there's a pan-European anti-genetically modified food network that, that we were part of and should be part of. And that's a kind of anti-negative thing, but there's also lots of positive um, restrictions on food and, and food uh, regulations that are really positive to be part of that we've just been stripped away from. Does anyone in the Scottish government have sympathy with the food sovereignty movement? How likely is this to shift upon agenda? I mean, I don't know. I've, I've grown quite cynical about it. I think that they speak a very good game about it. They fund stuff but it's a complete contradiction to fund local food initiatives and talk about a zero carbon food policy, but then have your main food strategy be export growth. It just doesn't make any sense at all. And it makes people just not trust them. It's just, it's just nonsense. And the inability to regulate the salmon industry is appalling. And, um, yeah, I don't, I don't really know what to say. I'm sure there are some people within the Scottish government that are better than that, but for whatever reasons, corporate capture or systemic capture, they're not really engaged in a credible process of, of change, in my opinion. Thanks very much, Mike. Uh, that was great. And thanks for that. The, the great questions from everybody. Thanks, Mike, for agreeing to be our speaker, answering all of our questions and talking about one of these crucial issues for Scotland to be addressed before and after independence. You're listening to Scottish Independence Podcasts, and we'd like to say thanks very much to the folk down in Dunbar and the Yes Dunbar group for letting us record their meeting with Mike Small on the politics of food sovereignty and food sovereignty. If you'd like to contact Yeston Bar Group, you'll find them on Facebook and on Twitter. And if you'd like to listen to more of Scottish Independence Podcasts, you'll find us on Podbean, Spotify, Apple, wherever you normally listen to podcasts. Just search for Scottish Independence Podcasts.
Hello from the Scottish Independence Podcast team. A few weeks ago we recorded a meeting organised by Yes Dunbar, who had invited Mike Small to come and speak to them. He's speaking about sovereignty and food sovereignty and the politics of food. Um, hello, uh, my name's Kath Jones. I'm one of the two conveners at Yes Dunbar. Um, a warm welcome to everyone joining us tonight. Uh, for the first Yes Dunbar speaker event of 2022, uh, whether you're a member of Yes Dunbar or from other Yes groups or, or various interests. Um, our speaker tonight is Mike Small, who many of you will, will, will be familiar with from the Bella Caledonia blog, which he has edited since 2007. Mike is a freelance writer, journalist, author and publisher who has written for The Guardian, Sunday, Sunday Herald, Sunday National and other publications. Uh, Mike was the founder of the Fife Food Project, which at the time was the largest food project in Europe. And from the findings of this project, Mike has written a book called Scotland's Local Food Revolution. He's also a member of the Enough Collective. You may also have seen Mike speak about food sovereignty on the Scotonomics video series on the Independence Live YouTube channel. I'd highly recommend checking this out if you've not already. It gives me great pleasure on behalf of Yes Dunbar to introduce Mike Small to give tonight's talk entitled Sovereignty and Food Sovereignty, The Politics of Food. Thank you and welcome, Mike. Hi, thanks very much. Thanks very much for inviting me. Um, but yeah, I'm really delighted to talk about sovereignty and food sovereignty and the politics of food and begin to um, explore some of this with you and look forward to discussion about it. Um, the interest in this subject has brought a kind of convergence of two streams of interest in my life, namely um, sovereignty and the search for Scottish independence and food sovereignty, the idea that you can control your own food system. And um, I think the idea of food sovereignty has regained interest um, in recent months, as the Brexit debacle has unfolded and with the collapse of food chains and with the rise in food prices and the realisation that our food system is, a, is incredibly precarious. Um, and um, this has meant that for the Scottish independence movement, for many people in the democracy movement, if you like, people are beginning to look about and say, well, what resources do we have? What energy resources do we have? What is our education system like? What do we have as the material basis for independence? And do we have, it's often kind of phrased as, um, could we feed ourselves? That's what people within the independence movement think that the question of food sovereignty is. And that question is, um, a bit more complex than we might currently understand it. So I'd hope to unpack some of that and um, maybe we can explore it in conversation. Um, so, but first, before we do that, maybe let's define what food sovereignty is usually meant to mean, um, because food sovereignty is a concept that really arose out of the developing world. Um, and the Campesina movement, which was peasant food workers who were sort of saying, well, 
we need to control our own food system. So it normally is defined by six defining features. And so I'll just go through them quickly before we go back to Scotland, if you like. The first is that food sovereignty focuses on food for people. The right to food which is healthy and culturally appropriate is the basic legal demand undermining, underpinning food sovereignty. So healthy and culturally appropriate food, the right to healthy and culturally appropriate food is the key demand. The second is that it values food providers. Many smallholder farmers suffer violence, marginalization and racism from corporate landowners. So it has food producers at its heart. Thirdly, it localizes food systems. Food sovereignty movement localizes food systems. It says that food must be seen primarily as sustenance for the community and only secondarily as something to be traded. Fourthly, it puts control locally. Local food providers must have control over territory, land, grazing, water, seeds, livestock and fish populations. Fifthly, it builds knowledge and skills. And sixth, food sovereignty works with nature. You can't really have a food sovereignty movement that is uh, unsustainable or against nature. So these are a set of slightly different criteria as the rest of the world understands it than if people within the independence movement say, are we food sovereign? So there's a couple of kind of competing thing, things going on here. Um, so before we unpack this a bit more, what, what's my qualification to talk about any of this and how do we approach the question of could Scotland feed itself? Um, uh, well, I between 2000 and 2014, I ran a, a local food project in Fife that was a bioregional response to climate crisis, and it grew and grew. And the list described it in 2012 as um, the Fife diet was established in 27 by Mike and Karen Small of Burnt Island as a prompt to recognise and appreciate the food that's all around us. Now it's the largest local food project in Europe. The project has 3,000 members and is driving various schemes around Fife, including community growing areas, kids clubs, plot-to-pot workshops, seasonal guides, online recipes, and celebrations of eating together with regular events. Now backed by five years of hands-on experience of the issues involved in making local food available and sustainable, the Fife Diet has also become an important and respected voice in the development of Scottish Government's national food policy. I'm not sure about that last bit because ultimately what we realised is that there was a bit of a contradiction between food sovereignty and sovereignty and that the Scottish Government's national food policy was really a set of contradictions. It was driven by the need for export growth. That's the underlying strategy of all of it. And then some funding local food projects and local food economies. But these things, for me, were in complete contradiction. They were in, not, not just intention, but they were completely contradictory policies. You couldn't do both and be coherent. And that's effectively why I stopped working in food, because it wasn't really credible to be uh, arguing for local food economies and sustainable food, whilst the national food strategy was, let's sell salmon to China and whiskey to India. This doesn't really make any sense at all. It's completely unsustainable. And it's completely out of sync with our um, realisation about the state of the climate crisis. So 
this is all a big uh, introduction to the question of, is Scotland food sovereign? Could Scotland be food sovereign? Can we feed ourselves? Do we have the natural resources to feed ourselves? And that's, this question is, yes, absolutely, we do. We have an abundance of food in Scotland and the ability to produce, manufacture and distribute food. Absolutely, we do. Um, but there are a number of problems about that. Um, we have good farming, we have seafood, we have wheat and grains, we have soft fruit. But there are several problems for that answer to be a simple one. Um, we don't grow much of what we eat and we don't eat much of what we grow. Much of our best food is destined for export and much of our land is completely oriented around the needs and cultures of the people who own our lands and rivers. And that's not us. If we take example of just three of Scotland's most iconic images, if we take the grouse, the salmon and the stag, they are often put forward as um, great iconic Scottish food produce, venison or salmon. Um, but in fact, they just act as kind of representations of our completely degraded and unequal land ownership patterns. So there's been estimates, um, this is a challenge, but I don't think it's far off, that a fifth of the land in Scotland is used for grouse, grouse shooting. Um, stag and deer are, uh, you know, a, a terrible representation of land ownership in Scotland. And, um, and really, this is, this is the, the idea of Scotland and rural Scotland and the Highlands as a kind of playground for the rich for rich people that aren't from here to come and hunt and shoot. And that dominates our land. So if we're discussing how we manage our land and how we can manage our farming and food, that reality has to be confronted. And that reality doesn't just disappear with independence. That reality is about landed class and power. So the pattern of land ownership severely curtails our ability to manage our land and our food systems and also our ecology and our psyche. Equally, Scotland suffers some of the worst cases of diet-related illness in the world and leads Europe in diabetes and childhood obesity and heart illness. So something about our diet as it currently stands is fundamentally wrong. So... Could Scotland feed itself? Yeah, but hopefully not the way it is now. So the problems with Scotland's food system are fundamental and dire. We currently have outsourced our food retail to about four giant supermarkets. And when we look at the fragility of that through the prism of Brexit, we understand that that system is extremely fragile. And it's not controlled by us, it's controlled by four companies. We don't have ownership of our land. We have massive dietary health issues. We have an export strategy that is oriented around two huge industries, salmon and whiskey, the first of which is hugely problematic. Almost every single sea loch in Scotland is heavily polluted by the salmon industry, which is creating a product that is riddled with lice and has decimated the wild population. Yet that's our iconic sales 
concept. Unsurprisingly, because of all of this, uh, we have a pretty low sense of our own food culture and our own food history and our own food futures. When I uh, did the Fife Diet, I remember telling people about it at the start and doing a talk in Dundee to school children and telling people right at the beginning, we're going to eat food only from Fife for a year and see what happens. What do you think is going to happen? And the hand at the back, the kids stood up and said, I think you're all going to die. And the reason he said that was because children and most of us are completely disconnected from land, think that we live in a country that produces nothing, can't really conceive of Scotland being in a place of abundance. And so we talk in the independence movement about cringe but we have a massive cultural cringe. We have massive cultural self-hatred about our own food, our own land. And we really need to repair some of that before we can think about or talk about feeding ourselves. We do have at the high end quite a lot of um, chat about our restaurants and about celebrity chefs and stuff like that. But that's kind of fairly peripheral. Most people don't eat out in fancy restaurants. The reality is that our school children are fed very poor school lunches, very poor for a pittance. So whilst we can celebrate some of these great chefs and they become great media people, the reality of some of our public health and public resources is, is pretty poor. So uh, what are the solutions to this? I think the first is not to assume that independence on its own would be some sort of panacea. It's an essential first step, but completely inadequate. We need to understand the deeper problems with our food system. We, understand, we need to understand the need for deeper cultural repair. We need to do something about it. We need to be stop pandering to business as usual and recognise that the multiple crises that we're in are not just constitutional, they're economic, they're social, they're health, they're Brexit, there are a number of crises converging here and there is stuff we can do about it. So I think that the food movement uh, could become a key part of the independence movement, but it has to go way beyond demanding saltires on Scottish goods or complaining when there's a Union Jack. It's kind of, it's a bit thin, it's a bit one-dimensional, it's not really credible. It needs to envisage what an exciting, radical and visionary Scotland would taste like and how it might begin to address the social and health crisis we face. So there are some good things that have happened. There is some radical thinking on this. There's some great examples from around the world, from nearer to home. There is the food sovereignty movement. Um, I produced a food manifesto of 20 ways to change the way we eat, which I can share on the chat. Um, as was said earlier, I wrote a book called Scotland's Local Food Revolution that outlines some of these problems and some of these solutions and the experience that we had. <clears throat> there is great work by projects like um, Nourish Scotland, which is a kind of think tank um, connecting people in the food movement in Scotland. There's the Orchard Collective that has begun to repair and connect Scotland's orchards. Um, there's the Scotland the Bread movement, which is exploring how you uh, develop grains um, 
for flour and improve bread at a community level. There's lots of lots of great examples throughout Scotland of people doing innovative, radical things in, in food that point the way to a better future. But we need to listen to them, we need to learn from them, and we need to give them much higher profile and instead stop celebrating the endless rollout of new supermarkets which provide cheap food, but poor quality food, poor jobs, low-paid, low-skilled low jobs, and just concentrate hands in, in a handful of people that already control our food system. So we can be food sovereign, absolutely. We can feed ourselves, but this needs a, a far more transformative look at what we mean by creating a new Scotland and creating a new food system. So uh, thank you for listening. Those are just some initial thoughts I have, and I'm happy to share some resources I've got with people to look into this and really look forward to people's questions and conversation. Thanks, Mike. That was really brilliant. Uh, plenty to get our teeth into there. Um, shall we move to the Q&A session? I'd like to ask some questions. Um, food prices. Obviously, that's an issue, but uh, I get from listening to you before that uh, you don't think that prices for food should be cheap, but that wages should be uplifted, and this involves a whole other thing. So we need commitment to a lot of different types of policy to get this to all come together so that we can have our food um, sovereignty and make it work for everybody. So um, how do we do it? <laughs> who who yeah. is, is working on this and uh, how do we apply pressure to, to get this to happen? Yeah, well, I mean, it's certainly it's true that there's lots of cheap food about and yep. in times of austerity and hard times it's uh, difficult to argue for food prices to rise <laughs> so mm. that's not what I'm arguing for I'm arguing for mm. food to be affordable rather than yep. cheap yep. because if food is just too cheap then that undermines the producers and classically with milk dairies yep. are producing uh, milk at a price to supermarkets that they're getting so exploited it's hardly worth their while but they're mm. kind of caught in that so it's not about making food cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and lower quality. It's about mm -hmm. raising the quality of the food, but making people in a situation where they're able to afford it. Yeah. So it is quite big systematic um, change that's being demanded here. But also the, the problems that we're facing are systematic and, mm -hmm. and deep. So um, we need to start changing things fundamentally. Yes, I agree. Uh, David, you've got your hand up. Would you like to ask a question? Yeah, uh, uh, comments and, and uh, questions, because um, I, I'm, I think, more concerned about reducing carbon emissions and having sustainable um, land, land use. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it's ridiculous that we, we, we can produce potatoes in East Lothian and then they then get shipped down to Manchester to be... Uh, washed and sorted, and then transported back back, back to the supermarket up, up here for us uh, to to buy. Um, and I find I, I'm not too bothered about sovereignty because I think I'm still going to going to want to drink tea and coffee, and and, and I'm perfectly happy to trade things. 
But on the other hand, um, uh, I am worried about um, uh, how far the cost of food adequately reflects the um, environmental impact of, uh, of uh, transport and how far it's possible for local authorities, say, to pursue procurement policies, which um, are geared towards lo lo local uh, <coughs> Um, yeah. when the market sort of goes very much the other way and, and the pressure is to buy the cheapest. I think we're, we're, we're lucky in Dunbar in, in having th things like, like the uh, community carrot, which at least provides one sort of pathway for lo lo local producers to sell their goods locally. Um, but the inequality of power between the sort of four, four, four main purchasers um, and uh, farmers who, who are left basically as price takers rather than being able to negotiate about it. Um, and also the power relationship of uh, tenant farmers to, to landowners. Um, and all this um, seems, seems to demand a, a much more comprehensive approach to land use and agricultural policy and food policy uh, than anything the government has got anywhere near coming up with. Um, anyway, sorry, <laughs> a combination of um, uh, a comment, but I mean, also questions about um, how, how, how do we cope about um, local, local um, so, so sourcing of foodstuffs? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of comments and questions in there. I mean, certainly in terms of procurement, uh, for schools, that tends to happen at huge levels. So you get Brake Brothers or somebody, some big corporation coming in with a huge bid that's cheap and so is accepted. And then they say, when you say, and how much is that per child? How much is that child's lunch actually costing? They say, oh, well, that's that's um, uh, commercial confidential. That's right. We can't actually work, work that out for you. We, well, they know exactly what it is, but they don't want to tell us because it's a pittance. It's embarrassing the amount of money it is. So you need to break some of those systems. You need to just say that's not acceptable. And that will take a boldness that I've not seen in Scottish or UK government. To be quite frank, you need to have a popular movement that demands some of these changes and puts pressure on our own governments. Otherwise, it's not going to happen because they're not bold enough and they're kind of beholden to corporate interests. It's just not going to happen. And the, the farming lobby itself is really quite conservative. Yeah. So um, I agree with you that those procurement issues are, are massive. And I also agree with you that the local economy needs to be nurtured in a way that we've not really seen yet. So I would advocate regional and bioregional local economic systems being developed. Um, that then um, are nurtured and have some some momentum. And we did it in Fife and it's mm. happening in Ayrshire in schools, sourcing locally. So there are models of that happening, but it is going to cost more money. Yeah. It just is. It's more expensive to feed people well and to set up those systems to skill people up. It's not endlessly more expensive, but it's more expensive than feeding your children really poor quality food. Yeah. Um, can I ask, ask a question from the chat? Um, can you say more about what difference independent will make on the food issues? That's from Gareth. 
Yeah, well, um, I mean, arguably none, arguably quite a lot. It depends what kind of independence we create. You know, I think if you're in control of your all aspects of your economy, if you're in control of your exports and your marketing and your soft power, then you have the potential to really change your food system. There's, it's perfectly possible that we gain independence, change the flag, and don't change it much else about landed power in Scotland or corporate power in Scotland or how we think about food in the future. In that case, very little would change. The same people would run our food system as do now. We just have some more salt towers. But the potential to, to, to really take control of your economy and your farming and your idea of what a local economy versus export growth meant is only really viable within an independence framework. Can I just come back on, on that? I mean, thanks very much for that answer, Mike. Um, part of the reason my question is that I do think some of the anxiety around independence, you know, people who are waving a bit and so on, is on a lot of these sort of supply issues. You know, will, will, I, will I still be able to get what I need? Will I still be able to buy the foods I want and so on? Um, and um, I, mean, I think we can be fairly sure that the, if the big supermarkets are not going to go away with independence. And you know, people like Tesco are already well used to working across um, different jurisdictions and it's not going to be a huge additional issue. They're already working in, in Ireland, of course, uh, which, which is an EU country anyway. Um, so I think we can kind of reassure think people that these kind of anxieties are not going to talk, cause too much hiccups. But nevertheless, we do have to be realistic that um, there are going to be some border checks with England and there are going to be some producers who are going to say, oh, this is too much hassle, I'm not going to supply across the border. And that might, that might happen in both directions. Do you have any comments on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of, I don't really want the same people to be running our food system. So I don't really want to have the reassurance of Tesco and Asda that they'll still be in charge. So I'm talking about a system where, a situation where Scottish independence is part of transformational change that is in sync with our climate reality. That doesn't mean the same system just continuing. And I'm quite wary of a notion of Scottish independence that says to people, everything will be the same. Everything will be exactly as it is. Don't worry. Any worries you have, will I must make them go away. Everything will be the same. That's not a, a, a concept of independence that I'm interested in. I think that's disastrous. I think the idea of independence I'm interested in is transformational and key to that is completely transforming our food system. So I'm not really interested in, oh, will there, will there be a border problem with us to getting the stuff over? That's, that's irrelevant to the future. The current food system is broken and we can tell that it's broken not just by the 17 kilometers of lorries out of Calais, we can tell it by our children's ill health and our diabetes and our leading uh, diet-related health indicators in the world. So when people say, oh, let's not change anything, we have to change everything. But I, I get that. And I guess most people on this call will get that. But in terms of voters who are anxious, how can we present this in positive terms? Uh, well, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't really care. I, I mean, if somebody is like, uh, I, I'm, I will vote yes if you tell me that nothing will change. That's not really a dialogue I'm going to have. I'm going to have a dialogue which says to this person, whatever age they are, 
this is the reality of the society we're in. This is the reality of the ecological crisis. If you think nothing has to change, that's okay. But I'm not really going to spend a lot of energy having a debate with you because you're living in a different world than the real one that the rest of us are in. So it's not really about assuaging the doubts of, you know, some, um, some no voters who are just living in a different world. That's, that's kind of pointless exercise, I think. Okay, thanks. Um, Dermot, would you like to put your question? Dermot? Yeah, sorry, I was just, just trying to figure out how to unmute, but anyway, I've done it. So um, thanks very much, Mike, for that. That's, um, that was really interesting. Um, I mean, I, I come to this uh, debate with no knowledge whatsoever about food other than, you know, there's a general um, trend towards healthier eating pretty much everywhere, um, even in my own family, for example. Um, so the, 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 the direction of travel, I think, is towards healthier eating, more local food, and, and I totally appreciate that this is a big and complex subject which involves land ownership and how people eat and supply chains and control of land and all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> but the point I want, I'm, I'm actually, um, for various family reasons, I'm sitting in Dublin um, just now and, uh, and I've been here for a number of months. And so I shop in Tesco's, unfortunately, because it's <laughs> here in Phibsburg, because it's low, nearby, and you know all the big supply, all the big suppliers are here in Dublin. They're the Tesco's and the Liddles and all the rest of it. But what I'm, what I'm really struck by um, is the amount of Irish produce that Tesco sell. For example, um, I can go to Tesco's just up the road and buy Irish apples. For example, the bags of Irish that come in a bag, and they come, I think, generally from um, County Tipperary. And um, the, the, the amount of Irish produce is extraordinary, actually, in Tesco. So I, I get that there's an issue with the Tesco's and their control of the supply chain. But even here in a country that's been independent for actually 100 years, it's continuing, I think, this year, um, you know, the existing mechanisms seem to be delivering local produce um, better than they do in Scotland because when I'm in Scotland, I despair. You, you can't go to, into Tesco's in Scotland and get Scottish apples. You just can't, mm -hmm. or, or, or very, very rarely. I mean, you can go to um, you can go to local shops in Dunbar and Musselburgh and all the rest of it. In if they're in season, you can find local apples, but you have to hunt hunt for them. So the um, so I guess I'm not really I don't really have a question. I'm just offering that as an as an observation that yeah. in a country that's been independent for 100 years already, the existing supply chains seem to have delivered a lot more local produce um, into the, the supermarket shelves. So there's a few things going on there. Um, I mean, so my definition of local produce isn't national. Right. If I live in the borders and I buy something from Shetland. That's technically in Scotland, but that's not local produce, mm -hmm. right? So I'm talking about bioregional, regional food systems. And I know that's difficult for people to get their heads around, but that is what I'm talking about. So, um, and the second thing I'd say is that um, it's, it's undoubtedly true what you're describing, that there'll be more Irish produce in Irish supermarkets than in Scottish supermarkets. But equally, Supermarkets cannot, by definition, give you local produce. They just cannot, because they're operating at such a scale that they're going to buy from big buyers at mass scale, and that's not going to be local, small, independent producers. It's just not. So 
supermarkets, in my mind, and this is my I'm happy to be challenged, but I don't see a future in which we have a viable low carbon or zero carbon food system that is run by supermarkets. It's just inconceivable because of the way they operate their supply chains and the way they buy at scale and the way they manipulate producers. I, I, if somebody can explain to me how that's going to be zero carbon, I'm all ears. I, that's inconceivable. To me. I mean, I suppose I suppose you're right, but I don't I don't see us stepping away from the supermarket system anytime soon. Um, you know, uh, I, I don't, in fact, I don't even know what would happen in order for us to do that because people are wedded to their supermarkets for a whole bunch of reasons. They um, are. You know, um, but at least, at least here, you know, if you go to Tesco's, you're going to get apples that have been grown maybe a couple of counties away, for example. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's slightly better. And I'd say it's materially better than, than it is in Scotland. I mean, I still despair of going into greengrocers in Scotland and having to buy leeks that have been grown in Leicestershire or wherever, you know, when there's... Yeah. there's <laughs> it's, uh, but I mean, I know that that's, that's a supply chain issue and, uh, and, um, uh, and I, I don't know what, what needs to happen in order to change that. It would be a lot more satisfying. I mean, I, I know the model you're trying to move to and it's... Um, probably aspirational or, or, or medium or longer term than, than short term. But at least, in, at least in the shorter, medium term in, a, in an independent Scotland, it would be nice to go into supermarkets and have an array in Scotland and have an array of Scottish produce facing you. Sure. And I think, yeah, you're right. I mean, um, the, the change I want isn't going to come easily. And it's certainly true that most, most of us simply can't conceive of the change that's necessary. It's just unthinkable because we're so wedded to the systems that are completely dysfunctional. But one note of optimism, when I was doing the Fife diet, I was told by a food producer who produced apple juice that branded it as Fife apple juice. And I had to take, take them to court because none of the apples was from Fife. Mm. And they said, well, you, you can't grow apples in Scotland. So that's changed. And equally, we were growing uh, trials of wheat and quinoa and trying to grow uh, wheat to make bread from Scottish-sourced flour. And we were told by lots of people, you cannot grow wheat for bread in Scotland. And then in the short period since we did that project, like seven or eight years, Scotland, uh, the, the bread, um, um, Flower Scotland has been just given a, a massive award for its innovative project and, and actually it's a great brand and a great product. So in, in seven years or less, a couple of key things about that's completely impossible, you can't do that in Scotland, have become completely impossible and award-winning. Mm. So change does happen mm. sometimes. I think I think part of the problem is that you know we're part of the same island as uh, as England and in certainly in England because of the larger land area and larger population and slightly better climate and all the rest of it it is possible to grow things like apples in number <clears throat> at a cheaper rate than it would be in Scotland and so therefore sure. supermarkets supermarkets obviously go for the cheapest uh, the cheapest unit rate when they're sourcing stuff so therefore you know if they have a choice between a, a an orchard in Worcestershire and an orchard in um, Lanarkshire, the likelihood is they'll take the one in, in Worcestershire. Unfortunately, that's just a it's just a the, it's just a geography of the the circumstances, isn't it? To a certain yeah. extent, 
Anyway, that was that was my point. It was just it was just to offer that observation, really. Sure, okay, thanks. Thanks, Dermot. Uh, another question from the chat, uh, Mark James: How to make how to make issue more inclusive rather than preserve of comfortable middle classes? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a big that's a big issue. That's definitely a big issue and a big question because I realised if you if you rail against supermarkets, you're perceived as railing against cheap food, and that's not a very popular thing to do. So. We, we should have the right to decent, affordable housing, and we should have the right to decent, affordable food. These are fundamental rights that we need to assert and demand. And put it in that, those terms, it's different from, I actually demand the right to be able to walk into a supermarket and buy you know, two litres of Coke for a pound, or you know, have an access, access to a wide range of really low quality cheap food. These are, these, are, these are things that are seen as a great democratic right and a great populist thing, but are actually really damaging for people and not very good for people and not really a social good. Um, so I'm acutely aware of the concept that local food or viable food is seen as a middle-class concern. And I'm acutely aware that people who are uh, on the breadline or in poverty, why would I care about the environment or the carbon of this food? I totally understand that. Totally understand that. But we need to be able to change the nature of this debate so that we're aligning our social needs, people's hunger and poverty and food poverty with, uh, you know, our wider longer-term goals of being having a viable food system uh, and a viable ecology. And I, and I think it's possible to do things in a way that has social justice at its heart. Thanks. Um, Alistair, would you like to put your question to Mike? Well, good day, Mike. Uh, thanks for that. That was um, really informative. I, I've got one question and, and I guess a couple of general observations. Uh, I, I came into the discussion maybe five minutes late, so I thought you may have spoken of this, I may have missed it, but I was, I was interested in whether you'd engaged or had any knowledge or feedback about how the ideas around food sovereignty and a more just uh, environment where producers are, are paid well and people are fed well, um, whether how that's uh, perceived in education in Scotland, because um, mm -hmm. I'm, you know, aware that the, and you know, I've got two kids. The knowledge of 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 food and the, and there's the disconnection in children, and also as they go and in, grow into adulthood between where the food comes from, where the food comes from, and, and what they eat. And I wasn't sure in in the research that you've done in the book that you've written whether you'd had any. Um, specific uh, experiences of dealing with people in education who could shape food curriculum, you know, home economics. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I have some experience. Um, I mean, we did a pilot project with Fife Council where we created a network of um, uh, six schools and three primary schools um, where we were, we, re we re rewrote the menu and mapped where all the food came from within Fife. And then um, we got, for example, the kids to create the, the logo for the 
carton of milk that they were going to get and then mm. take kids to the farm where that milk was produced mm. and uh, retrain the staff, uh, the catering staff, in to skill them up in how to prepare from fresh ingredients. Yeah. So it's quite complicated because a lot of that's been destroyed. A lot of that food is just brought in. And so a lot of the staff are de-skilled. Pupils don't know where any of the foods comes from. Who cares? Nobody yeah. cares. <laughs> but it is quite easy to recreate that and put that into the curriculum. You know, okay, this is geography. This is mass. This is home economics. This is everything. Uh, this is your culture. So we can do that. And it's happening in Southeast, East, Southeast Ayrshire as well. Um, so there's some fragments of stuff where that's happened and worked and we can do that. Um, so that is possible, but we're quite far away from that. Mm. And yeah. it's going to take quite a lot of work to repair that. I'm yeah. not sure if that so, answered your question. Sorry. Yeah, it's almost like the ignorance around food and food production in Scotland is almost seen as a cultural virtue um, or, you know, part of the cultural line identity unfortunately um yeah the other, the other observation i had my, my wife is a, uh, is a nutritionist by by training and well was and she used to get so frustrated by the low level of um advice that used to come from official sources whether it was uh, government or not-for-profits that had very close ties with the food industries and that, that was that was always um uh, very, you know, a bit of a concern. And the other observation I had was we lived for many years in, in Australia where there's obviously it needs to be food uh, reliant on its own production for obvious reasons, given its its proximity, but where there's actually uh, a real duopoly of supermarkets there. So you can only really buy your food from from two sources, two major corporate sources. And it's on, they, they almost have or behave at a, at a criminal level in terms of how they treat their producers um, to maintain, yeah. um, uh, you know, that milk is, is cheap, is able to be bought cheap, cheaper than it is for the cost of production. Um, and yeah. yeah, it's really quite, quite sad. So that whatever happens, we've got to avoid that scenario. Well, that's true here for dairies. That's true right here and now for dairies. It's, it's appalling and it's ex complete exploitation and the dairies, have very little choice but it's it's an appalling situation yeah and they I, I presumably they get threatened by the supermarkets as well and yeah yeah and it's very close to not being viable for them at all um, um but very few outlets and, and this is part of the centralization as well so part of the reason why you would decentralize it is that you break up some of those power networks um, and you don't have a dependency on one buyer that comes along and says, I'll buy all of your milk. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, another question from the chat uh, from Sue McFadgen. Uh, thank you, Mike. Very informative. I would really like to read your information as well. Uh, what are you implying is really a need to challenge the grip of market capitalism? How do you see this beginning? How can the small-scale projects start to become more mainstream? Big question. Ooh, good question, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is about market capitalism. We, we all know this. It's all about market capitalism. Um, I suppose I think that we need to have lots of grassroots initiatives 
like the Fife Diet and like lots that were are about. And then we need to connect them up so that they have sharing of knowledge. And then we need to either force national government to adopt this, because a lot of this rhetoric is in national government. Like we're creating circular economies and local economies. Okay, are you? Are you really? Where? Show us. Because there are the, 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 the grassroots of those happening, but they're not really supported. Um, so, yeah, I think that we need to um, boost those local initiatives and connect them up and make almost like, um, you know, like how uh, you have rhizomes of underground networks connecting. That's how I kind of see that uh, network creating underground patterns across Scotland that then pop up and, um, and share knowledge with each other. But it, it is a challenge and I'm kind of caught between despair and hope, <laughs> like a lot of people these days, because I see all of these amazing initiatives, but I also see kind of like failure to help support them um, at a Scottish national level. Thanks. Uh, another question from Isabel Knox. Uh, are there any models from other countries, e.g. Scandic countries, where food sustainability is working so that we can follow it? Yes, loads. Loads from lots of places. Loads from Cuba and loads from Denmark, where they have a thing called the House of Food in Copenhagen that retrained all public health workers in hospitals and schools and prisons. And I think they have something like, I think it's something like, ridiculous like a 92% organic content of produce in public institutions in Copenhagen because of this house of food that was a holistic systemic uh, plan to change their food system and they're ambitious they're bold they're radical they're grounded it's about jobs it's about creating good jobs it's about standards and it's wildly popular and I think that is a model that we should just grab and replicate and learn from because we could do it here. There's no big difference between us and Denmark in terms of cities and people. And so, yeah, there's some exciting uh, examples. In Cuba, there's a thing called Organicopos, which was um, to create large scale urban farming um, that was like allotments, but on a municipal scale. And that was because they had the US um, ban. And so they had to learn how to feed themselves. And that's how they did it. And it, again, it created jobs. It created people having access to fresh fruit and vegetables that were locally sourced and organic, organic grown. It's an amazing example. It's radical, but it's not scary. And we could do it here. Thanks. Uh, another question from the chat. Uh, thanks, Mike. What would your vision look like in Dunbar if you could be totally utopian? <laughs> Martin Lacey. <laughs> well, let's be totally utopian. Um, I suppose um, really stripping back to basics and sort of rethinking what is our food system for? What's our food for? What do we need it to be for? And let, let's make that for us. So it would be food that sustains us, that nurtures us, that nurtures the ground, nurtures the soil, is good for uh, biodiversity, is created with love and, um, and 
make sure everybody's well fed and happy and nourished. And the funny thing is that all of that is possible. It's not really that utopian. <laughs> it really isn't because we have skills, we have some technology, we have some simple technologies, um, and we have some knowledge that we're basing on. You know, it's not like new technologies um, are in conflict with old knowledge. They're not. They're, they're compatible. And I think in the 21st century, we could bring them together and create a food system that was, that was really working for people. Thanks. Thanks, Mike. Uh, a question from Arthur. In Scotland, does climate restrict what we can do food-wise? Yeah, it does. Yeah, it totally does. Um, so my commitment and my understanding is that you eat locally and you eat what's viable locally. So that is problematic depending on where you are because you might have poorer quality uh, land and it's simply true that some parts of Scotland uh, the west and the northwest have lower you know higher higher rain and lower quality soil they just do so when you map that you figure out where the parts of the land are that has better soil for growing wheat and growing uh, different crops so if you're taking my line of argument seriously which you may not, um, then you eat what you can grow viably where you are. And that does have a, a difference further north you are and what soil you have. But it also becomes interesting because places that have um, different qualities of, of land and soil can have grazing cattle, uh, might have access to seafood so a lot of the West Coast has, has amazing seafood, but less good arable land. So when you begin to map, and nobody's really done this properly yet, when you begin to map regionally and bioregionally what Scotland could, could grow for itself, um, you see amazing diversity and you see challenges in different places. We were really blessed in Fife because we had a mix, but other places are even better. And, and interestingly, cities are amazingly fertile as well. So definitely location and climate affects what you could grow but it's uh it's also an opportunity for innovation so are all high-tech options horribly carbon greedy or are there things we could um use that would would offset our bad climate in that respect i mean yeah well it depends what you mean by high-tech um, well, I mean, it's not a basic is, farming. is what I mean. Not necessarily yeah. soil. Yeah, I mean, a, a polytunnel's quite high tech in some senses. Um, um, I think also once you change the mindset that you have to operate at a gigantic scale, that really changes the technology you would use. Mm -hmm. So um, harvesting water for irrigation systems or using uh, renewable technologies to improve your irrigation system. Is that high tech? It's a wee bit high tech, but it's not, it's not gigantic in scale. Mm. Um, and um, then saying, so I, I suppose the difference is, um, rather than say, how can we produce the food that we currently eat, but locally, which would mean a question like, how can I create strawberries in December 
or asparagus or whatever, you know, that creates a technological need that isn't there if you say, well, I'm going to eat locally and seasonally. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to eat asparagus when it's June. And I'm not really going to eat, um, you know, kiwi fruits because I can't possibly create them sustainably in Scotland. But the different question is, could I live without eating kiwi fruits? Well, you probably, probably could. So it's basically working out why we need food sovereignty, why we need energy sovereignty, why we need all of these various different types of sovereignty and pulling them together. And for all of that to work out, we need to plan for it. We can't just say we're going to do this and then blunder into it. It has to be planned for and it has to be something that's worked through properly because it has massive implications for everything. That's what I see it. Yeah. Any more questions? I think we're almost there. No hands. Uh, Dermot, did you want to come back? Yeah, just just one other observation from here, the side of the Irish Sea. I went into a shop yesterday and, and they were selling big bags of uh, seaweed, dried seaweed. Mm. Um, never seen that before, actually. I know that seaweed is a thing and you can harvest it and use it in various uh, foodstuffs, et cetera, et cetera. But I've never seen it sold commercially in a shop before. And I saw that yesterday here in North Dublin. Um, so, you know, with um, Scotland's um, enormous coastline, I would have thought that's a resource that, that we should be looking at, really. I don't know, Mike, if you <coughs> look at that from a technical point of view in, in your um, work in the, food, in the food sector. There's no upscale, really. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. Seaweed is one of these um, things that's become really fashionable and could be a great product on all sorts of levels. Um, and there are some people doing some good stuff about this. It's a bit like um, oat milk. You know, what, uh, why don't we have Scottish oat milk? Um, as we change, you know, I mean, there's incredible things about people moving to veganism and, and, and reducing their meat that a few years ago would just be like unthinkable. So change kind of happens quite rapidly. And the excitement about stuff around seaweed uh, or um, non-dairy produce creates huge opportunities for new local industries and produce to, to spring up and be really viable. So I think that's exciting. Do you see any uh, issues at all with um, joining uh, any trade unions such as the EU or EFTA? Do you think uh, it will make it more difficult to protect food sovereignty or easier or what do you feel? Um, I think that's a mixed bag. I think it's a mixed bag. It's a pretty massive question. It's quite complex. Um, so it would create problems, but it would also create massive funding opportunities. Um, and I don't really see Europe as a sort of static, stagnant entity. I sort of see it as a thing that has got some real flaws and problems, but has also got incredibly rich opportunities and networks. So I would be, for example, um, there's an, a pan-European anti-genetically modified food network that, that we were part of and should be part of. And that's a kind of anti-negative thing, but there's also lots of positive 
um, restrictions on food and, and food uh, regulations that are really positive to be part of that we've just been stripped away from. Uh, does anyone in the Scottish government have sympathy with the food sovereignty movement? How likely is this to shift upon, upon the agenda? I mean, I don't know. I've, I've grown quite cynical about it. I think that they speak a very good game about it. They fund stuff. Um, but it's a complete contradiction to fund local food initiatives and talk about a zero carbon food policy, but then have your main food strategy be export growth. It just doesn't make any sense at all. And it makes people just not trust them. It's just, it's just nonsense. And the inability to regulate the salmon industry is appalling. And um, yeah, I don't, don't really know what to say. I'm sure there are some people within the Scottish government that, that are better than that, but for whatever reasons, corporate capture or systemic capture they're not really engaged in a credible process of, of change, in my opinion. Okay, thanks for that, Mike. Anyone else uh, with some questions? Or are we all done? Okay. Thanks very much, Mike. Uh, that was great. And thanks for that. The, the great questions from everybody. Um, Thanks, Mike, for agreeing to be our speaker, answering all of our questions and talking about one of these crucial issues for Scotland to be addressed before and after independence. You're listening to Scottish Independence Podcasts, and we'd like to say thanks very much to the folk down in Dunbar and the Yes Dunbar group for letting us record their meeting with Mike Small on the politics of food sovereignty and food sovereignty. If you'd like to contact Yes and Bar Group, you'll find them on Facebook and on Twitter. And if you'd like to listen to more of Scottish Independence Podcasts, you'll find us on Podbean, Spotify, Apple, wherever you normally listen to podcasts. Just search for Scottish Independence Podcasts.